These women have actually done very little to antagonize their surroundings, except by existing. Greetings, salutations, welcome to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what's going on right now. I am Laura Good. I'm Adrian Dobb, and we're joined today by... Moira Dodigan. Hello. It's so good to be here. Promoted friend of the pod. Yeah, I feel like I remember you from another podcast. (laughs) I feel like I've heard this voice before. I've been a fan of this pod for years, like big, you know, like longtime listener, first time caller. Uh, I'm like thrilled to be here. (laughs) Not even first time caller. Third time well, guest. But we are once again like united by this circle of obsession, as we have been with, with many texts before, uh, by the Australian murder mystery series Deadlock, which I'm trying to remember where the recommendation chain started. I think Adrian recommended it to Moira. Simultaneously, I was texting Moira about it, being like, How did Australia like surgically remove all the interests in my brain and like perfectly implant them into one TV show? But um American queers are hot on the case of this show. Adrian, how did you hear about it? it like what started you on this path i don't remember i think i read a tweet about it and was like yes this has this has a lot of things this has crime but it also appears to be a parody of crime shows i'm not a big australia guy i gotta be honest it's like um can take it or leave it but you know quirky kind of provincial mystery kind of seemed mm-hmm. i mean if olivia coleman had been involved i think i would have run not walked but instead i i walked and i still didn't regret it i was sort of halfway like expecting olivia coleman to appear at some point in this series especially because i had just seen the bear season two where she makes like a very very like surprise appearance but as i was trying to gather my thoughts for this show i was haunted by my inability to distinguish the titles of all the crime shows like it that have come before you know like there's top of the lake the one with elizabeth moss but then we fall into this gully of like happy valley like all the titles get very soupy to me broad church right broad church yeah and then it gets like yeah it gets very like mad libs for me what's the one with uh kate winslet oh. in pennsylvania <laughs> i was about to so confidently say top of the mayor case in point uh it is mayor of east town i believe yes. that's what you're thinking top of, of. the schuylkill top of the schuylkill <laughs> yeah. yeah. but this is exactly like context collapse i'm talking about top of the conchahawken <laughs> It's interesting that you guys are naming off this like incredibly well-established genre, right? There is a small town with some secrets and some resentments and some, you know, regional yep. quirks in which there is a murder mystery mm-hmm. and there is usually a very hard-boiled detective and that detective is, you know, tasked with uncovering the secrets that surround this death yeah and deadlock is kind of both a perfection of that genre and also a send-up of it right it sort of ticks all the boxes but it's a comedy i read today that when the two women who wrote the show whose names are kate and kate they are an australian comedy duo they pitched it and conceived of it as like funny broad church oh they did yes (laughs) yeah this is both smart and contributes to the context collapse for me but like it's still a useful reference point (laughs) i'm like funny valley funny lake funny top of the (laughs) (laughs) valley. But I'm 
with you. Yeah. F- funny Jane Campion is is a hard thing to imagine, to be quite honest. That's a very good. Like point. there are many things that movies are very yeah. very good, but uh, yeah. not not one thing she is not. You know? No, but Moira, I really like the way you were kind of high level conceptualizing this like detective serial quote unquote true crime drama and like another element of it that i think frequently recurs is it seems like check me if you guys think this is true but it seems like usually the murder victim is an insider to whatever town is being explored and the detective is the outsider and uh, well isn't that isn't it partially half the and case half. here in this case it's half and half but i think that's normal i think there's the detective who's too close to yeah. the case then the aloof usually male detective who comes from the outside and is sort of not accepted right. and like steps on everyone's toes, which does happen here too, but in a deeply comedic way. Yes. As I so often think, I'm thinking of James Cameron and I'm thinking that like one detective on the Titanic has to be Jack Dawson and one has to be Rose DeWitt Bucator. Like there has to be a mysteriously well-informed detective who in this case is, her name is Dulcie. Is that the detective's name who is more local? Dulcie Collins. Dulcie Collins. I can't try to illustrate an Australian accent. Who's too close to the case. uh, She's very close. As her a mismatched partner at one point puts it she can't see the forest for the lesbians oh my god yes and then the other one is uh, eddie redcliffe from darwin uh, i'm probably also betraying right. that but uh, yeah eddie is a woman let's note like with a just never explained why her name is eddie but like her name is eddie should we maybe uh, give people a quick synopsis uh of what where this is set i mean yes. you've probably gathered the australian part but this is set specifically tell us in professor tasmania uh, the island of Tasmania. I don't know whether we ever get any geographic clues as to where it is, but it's pretty isolated. It's not Hobart. It's not, you know, it's it's. Uh, this is an area that appears to have been kind of dominated by a fishing industry and then became, we don't quite know when, a kind of haven for lesbians who want to, you know, get out of Sydney, get out of Melbourne, it seems like, right? Yeah. The, like, invading, gentrifying force of stylish lesbians is my favorite element of this show. What were you going to say, Moira? Well, for people who, maybe like me, don't know very much about Australia, Tasmania is that island, the large island off the southern coast of Australia. It kind of looks like Australia, like, dropped its purse, uh, and that's Tasmania. And it is one of the colder parts of Australia. It is like sort of furthest from the equator. And it also has been described to me as sort of like the Florida of Tasmania, if not Interesting. in terms of weather, then in terms of culture, the Florida of Australia, rather, in that it is very rural. It tends to be you know, susceptible to white identity politics, like Christian identity politics. And it is like more conservative mm-hmm. and a little, a little more poor, which I think like is mm-hmm. really essential to sort of the scene piece of the show, which is that, you know, this is a town that is gentrifying, it's changing. It was a very downtrodden, seems like fishing village. There's allusions to some kind of steel mill, I believe, that had been shut down. Sawmill. Sawmill. Which... Yeah. There was a there was a large blue collar industrial employer that employed a lot of these white working class men who live in this tiny coastal town called Deadlock and employs them no more. And now the town is going through an identity crisis because it's become a vacation spot, a gentrifying vacation spot. It reminded me a little of like Hudson, New York that way, which was like, I was just, I was thinking of analogies and Hudson came up. Yeah. It's like a, a formerly like economically depressed town that now has an influx of outsiders who are like, very economically distinct mm-hmm. from the sort of native born there population. 
and there's displacement. This is also mirrored by this like earlier displacement and turf war. So like the resentments between like the native born whites and the sort of gentrifying lesbians who are using this place as like a vacation spot and moving in and changing it is sort of mirrored Mm -hmm. by this older turf war between the aboriginals who are very much like still around and who are like economically marginal even when this in this depressed community and the white people who colonized it right there's all these references to something called the settler highway there are references to old land disputes between white families and aboriginal people and a lot of the folks who are sort of at the margins of this town and peripherally connected to the murder are aboriginal Australians who are in this like mm-hmm. in states of poverty and desperation and resentment. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I wasn't clear about, I mean, I, I don't think it's quite a vacation spot. These are people who've essentially this is you know they've moved to Vermont basically. They moved. There. Yeah, I thought they had moved there full time. Given that, for instance, they're now sort of yeah. able to feel the mayor of the town of Deadlock, which to me indicates that they've sort of put down roots. Well, there's a little of both, right? Because there's people like our primary detective Dulcie, this like tall, blonde, buttoned up, reserved woman with a lot of roots in the town who's been living there for it seems like maybe a decade or so with her wife. And then there's also people who are brought into the town for the winter festival. That's right. Does anybody want to describe this? Oh my gosh, the festival. The festival. First of all, for like half of the series, I thought that I was just mishearing the Australian (laughs) accent pronouncing festival. You know, like a nar, like I thought it was just like a festival, but the festival is this, it, it becomes sort of the emblem for the gentrification, it seems. Like what you both have been circling around in a really interesting ways. This show is definitely a kind of battle of the sexes, but it's also a kind of culture war that's going on in terms of like who comprises this town and who makes decisions about how it represents itself. But the way the festival represents itself is this very like bougie foodie. I think they're making a tip to toe. Is it a por- is it a pig that they're yeah. using? Like every piece of the pig. There's lots of shifting perspectives on like offals in the cuisine. You know, for some people that's like something they won't touch. For some people that's something that they consider really like a delicacy or, or exotic or whatever. But like the role of food in the show and like the processing of meat is kind of an interesting parallel to like the murder parallel to me. But it seems like the festival notably is led by this star chef who's like a lesbian who is a daughter of a very prominent family in the community that comes into play in the drama many different times. That's a really important point. So we should say that this festival, which is portrayed in truly absurd glory. I mean, like we only see totally. Of it, it's it's amazing. I mean, the food is hilarious. Yes. Well, there's a four hour documentary maybe called Poseidon's Uterus that we get like little snippets oh God, of. That's right. It's not amazing. Right. But all yes. this keeps getting being interrupted by just a just heaps of bodies turning up, just like a staggering so number many of, bodies. Of dead yeah. people. In contrast to like these other genre of like murder mystery small town shows that we've been talking about, in Deadlock, the murder victims, of which there are several, are all straight mm-hmm. white men. They're not damsels straight in distress. Men, They're yeah. not gay vagrants. Right. They are straight white men right. who are members of like the native-born working-class community. The more powerful families in the community. Also, these men are being found with their tongues cut out. 
they're being found posed as Jesus. They're being like, there's, I think in the pilot episode, one of the characters, I believe one of the Aboriginal teenagers who make, make up the kind of Greek chorus of the show. I think she makes a comment, like usually it's women you see killed this way, you know, in a way that's sort of a meta commentary on the genre itself. Right before she vomits on his, on his 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 penis after dropping a lit joint on his dead pubic hair. Yeah. I was like, wow, this show is going hard right from the first five minutes. I think there were also probably four or five cunts in that first five minutes. Like the show made more liberal use of the word cunt than anything I've ever seen. And I was here for it. So one thing we might want to point out sort of like as these kind of culture war tropes play out and if people are like, oh, I don't want to watch this because, you know, I get enough of that if I, when I open the the bird app. Right. That's just America. Well, I guess today. it's not yeah. the bird app, the, the, the X app. What's interesting is that in some way, the sort of us versus them thing is something that the characters in the show very much believe, but it's something that the show and some people in it constantly undercut too. So like you mentioned that like the slightly pretentious chef with a temper problem who, you know, is clearly one of the things that's drawing people to the festival uh, with her tail to snout or whatever, uh, nine course, uh, you know, tasting menu or whatever, is a daughter of Deadlock who fled because she couldn't stand kind of this world where where basically sexual violence and or pregnancy were her ways out. Uh, similarly, um, one of the most delightful subplots is the constable uh, who was working with Dulcie Abby. Uh, Abby Matsuda, yes. big eyes, yes. according, to, according to Eddie, who can never mm-hmm. remember his name, mm-hmm. right, coming sort of into her own. And she's a native daughter of Deadlock. And so there is all this, there's this interesting way in which, right, like on the one hand, like there's this group of men that's saying that like, we are, we were Deadlock and we are the old guard. And then there are all these queer people and women who are like, well, no, I mean, like, we were also here and we have just as much of a right to this place as you do. And we hated it before these women showed up and, you know, taught us how to cook awful (laughs) there were two like core things that i really loved about this show that what you were saying was just reminding me of one is that to me like all of the best what i would call feminist crime thrillers it's drama and it's action emerges from authentic places like in women's lives rather than female stories that have been grafted onto male archetypes. Certainly there's some grafting of archetypes with like a police procedural, but you brought up the character of Abby, for example. To me, the most sort of affecting plot developments of the show was how like the building of her confidence and the building of her trusting herself, mainly over the like annoying voice of her like annoying, like conceited boyfriend, forms like a real arc within the show. Like that Mm -hmm. has significant plot impacts in like a really character driven and believable way. But also, as we're talking about the sort of culture wars of the show, something that's occurring to me is like the show definitely has some characters of color in the form of these like Aboriginal teenagers who are like delightful characters that have like really interesting interweavings with the action of the show. But it is a primarily white show. And in being so, it actually presents a really interesting spectrum of characters who seem to answer the question like, what do white women do and what are white women for? Right? Like you see a whole spectrum of white female motivation and morality through the show, from like hero to victim to antagonist and like many gray shades in between. And as the show is presenting these really like sort of quote unquote empowered portraits of like Dulcie, the lead investigator, 
And the, the chef character we were just talking about, I forget her name on the show, but the daughter of Deadlock who comes back. Sydney is, I think, her name. The, is that who I'm The blonde with the yeah, hair. Yeah, the blonde with the hair. There's, well, there's two guy. celebrity Sky. chefs. Sky O'Dwyer. Sky O'Dwyer. Sky O'Dwyer. Sky O'Dwyer. Sky O'Dwyer. So I'm thinking, you see these very, quote unquote, like empowered portraits in Dulcie and in Sky O'Dwyer. Then you also see multiple women who are experiencing domestic violence in some form. And you also see women who have very little power within the auspices of the show. And I just thought that that was really nuanced and interesting in its dimensionality. One of my favorite characters and plots on Deadlock is actually an older white woman. And it's interesting that we talk about the famous chef in Deadlock because there's actually two. There's Sky O'Dwyer, who's the young, hip, like millennial lesbian. And then there's this older figure who is sort of like more of a Martha Stewart. Great point, yes type she's got these cookbooks out and she used to be married to the mayor of deadlock she is from one of the old Mm -hmm. colonizer families her family has uh its own private island off the coast of deadlock and she is on the one hand like a very self-avowedly like feminist philanthropist Right. right she is using her inherited wealth and her position to try and lift women out of poverty and dependence in deadlock she's giving all these grants scholarships yeah Yeah. all these grants and scholarships she's offering a scholarship to one of the aboriginal teenagers she's giving grants to women-owned small businesses but she also seems somewhat sinister and a little oblivious she's like one of these characters who clearly has a secret and a dark side and a little bit of like cruelty to her although Mm -hmm. i also really love just stylistically how much everybody's cruelty in the show is played for laughs at their own expense even though you know it becomes clear that this is a serial killer operating in the town who is murdering their victims in like a ritualistic dark way that sort of taps at the version of evil that has a lot of depth and and psychological nuance Mm -hmm. but there's also just this like thudding stupidity of all these like narcissist and that is something that i really appreciate about the show is that it shows everybody from across these gender and class divides as being just like so petty <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. and full of themselves totally. and and like uh clumsy and stupid so there's like and biased and flawed yeah. yeah and there's these conceited lesbians doing like there's something that they call like a carrot masturbation workshop that's never like explained <laughs> carrot, carrot, wanking. carrot wanking uh <laughs> And it has to like get canceled. Said, they say it twenty times. Like, <laughs> you can't say it enough. It has to get canceled because there are all these inconvenient murders happening, you know. And then there's like some kind of like nude portrait session that the lesbians are doing on a beach, and then they catch like the local junkie who's also like always stealing copper wire is like masturbating in the in the dunes behind them they're like oh is he wanking again (laughs) that naked scene i thought was really clever as you pointed out because the way it's shot i believe it's at the beginning of an episode or a scene change within an episode an episode and you don't know what you're looking at at first all you're seeing is naked motionless female bodies on a beach in a murder show so there's clearly like an insinuation like is this a murder scene at first and then you find out it's just like the wacky art lesbians like doing doing whatever their portrait yeah you're like are these characters dead now or is this some kind of dream sequence and then they all get up and they're like oh he's waking again it's like perfect oh it's so funny timing so that the pull out from the dark into the funny all the time it was very made it very light and enjoyable to watch if you're not really into 
violence, but it also struck me as very true to life, right? Like a lot of the darkness of class resentment and gentrification and even like gendered violence coexists with this in real life with this like... (sighs) like unfailing reliability that people are going to be like morons, like self-serving morons. Yeah. And just petty, just petty and like obsessed with bullshit. And I love that part of it. Yeah. And while we have to be very, very careful about not spoiling the show, mm-hmm. we should say that my big worry as a as a crime TV watcher was like, what if this is funnier in the procedural than it is in its resolution, right? Like, because often these things kind of fall down. It's right? a hardship to land. Yeah. Yeah. And they really do. And I think they do it yes. also tonally by giving us a killer who's both plausible, super sinister, and just so fucking delusional. <laughs> You know, I, I don't want to say much more, but if no, maybe uh, once we get closer to the end of the conversation, we can we can create a clear delineation of like, don't listen past this point if you don't want spoilers. Yeah, yeah. but it is very funny. In some way, you follow the handiwork of this person for eight episodes, yeah. and you kind of think like, this is going to be some kind of genius, and it turns out they're not. <laughs> they're, no. they're very, very dumb. no, indeed. I can't believe we've made it twenty-two minutes without mentioning the lesbian acapella choir. Oh my god, like. <laughs> Of all of, it's a lot of singing in this show. Of all of the elements to throw on like a murder mystery bingo card. Like I did not see like lesbian acapella choirs singing I Touch Myself like on my bingo card. That was that was a truly original touch. I it's perfect pitch. They do a wonderful job. Yeah. Oh my God. And like how, how both Dulcie, the lead detective, and her partner Kath are both in the choir. But like you can tell just from their very first performance that Kath is the one who's really into it. And Dulcie looks like she wants to die on stage <laughs> You, just, you know that she's been dragged there by her partner. Pitch perfect, like chef's kiss. I mean, so I think every single episode has a singing interlude, right? And I think I believe so. the way it works is, I mean, I, I can't quite remember all of them, but they're all pretty pitch perfect cuts. Yes. And then I think in one episode, so at some point, because the, the serial killer is clearly targeting men, the men decide to remove themselves from deadlock and they, they ride out in a bus singing what's that song you know you're the voice you know that that 80s song oh i don't remember that one sorry i actually did find a roundup online that lists all the songs uh oh my oh, gosh nice. the, performed by the deadlock choir is how it's listed in this roundup but like we already mentioned i touch myself also, all the things she said by iconic early two thousands group tattoo. That's right, tattoo. <laughs> and we belong by Pat Benatar. Also, oh, like Pat a great, Benatar. great choice. Yeah. There was also a drop in of lives lightning crashes, which I want to sing so badly, but like I don't want to pay for the rights. But like you have heard this song in the early nineties. I think it's the yeah, the yeah. wife of one of the dead guys singing it at the funeral, and it was just perfect it was so hilarious. is that the one where he's like there's a weird line about placenta 
Like yes, that's yeah, one. And it's like yes. placenta does not fall to the floor. Yeah, it's like not how placenta. Maybe works. I can just uh, maybe I can just read the lyrics to Lightning Crashes because this is really important. Um, <laughs> Lightning crashes, a new mother cries. Her placenta falls to the floor. So yes, the angel opens her eyes. The confusion sets in before the doctor can even close the door. <laughs> So yeah, there's there's always been a strange placenta in that song. I admire your restraint in not singing that. I deeply want to, but I just I think we would have to pay for it if I did, and like that that's not a cause. Yeah, I think yeah. the Clayman Institute for Gender Research should be funding. Um, God, the songs are so good. I think Cherry Bomb is also on this list. Psycho Killer, oh yeah, just incredible. Oh, Cornflake Girl, the Tori Amos moment was also perfect. Yeah, and there is this very funny moment, like I say, when when the men then sing not very well they kind of belt out this kind of karaoke right i think it's called you're the voice i forget who sings mm-hmm. it. It was like 1983 84 and it's this funny like prise de parole right they're like now now we're talking and you realize that like they you know they have been very effectively marginalized in the show and like and it goes as poorly as uh something sure as a, you know you go boys you know moment can possibly <laughs> go involves gas masks is all i'll say i'm uh, thinking about i don't even know what it is and what you just said that made me think about this but i'm thinking about snake imagery throughout the show like it seemed like snakes sort of formed mm-hmm. a motif throughout the show and the the primary way that they're mentioned maybe i was just thinking about like the snakiness of some of the male characters you were just describing but there's a motif that enters through the private island on which the town's rich family has buried their dead like suspicious old white lady that moira was mentioning before makes an excuse that nobody ever goes out to visit there because there are poisonous snakes. And then without spoilers, this is a plot point that comes back. But I thought that was one part of what this show did so well was like with a pretty like light hand without, without making any of it too heavy. It created these sort of networks of association with like snakes and songs and gender and just like the way it details the place. Anyway, did you guys notice that about the snakes? Well, I thought they were... Chekhov's snakes. Yes, exactly. Something's going to happen with these snakes. Yes. You can't put men- a casual mention. Someone's going to get bitten by these motherfucking snakes in this motherfucking island. <laughs> I don't even know why this feels important to me that I saw snakes on a plane the weekend it came out in New York in, I think it was 2006, and it was one of the like most batshit movie-goring experiences I've ever had. Like That was probably the well, most fun imagine. I've ever had in a Newton movie theater. It was hilarious. Anyway, oh, well, like- you were saying... <laughs> I'm jealous that you got to see that in the theater. That sounds really fun. I think like some of the plot devices are very subtle. Like, you know, as the snakes are going to come back, they are, you know, they mirror the behavior of some of the people. They're there like lying in wait, literally to come and strike. But then some of the, some of it was very like thudding you on the head. Like at one point, the men of Deadlock, because they both feel targeted by the serial killer and because they resent the like sort of new dominance of, lesbians gynocracy yeah they they kind of they kind of pull a charlottesville or like a january 6th where they form this like roving band of guys in like trucker hats they're literally carrying tiki torches and they're like out there trying to cause trouble and it's so it's not just that there's like a a gender war in the sense that like these like middle-class lesbians are threatening the masculinity of these white working class men who, you know, some of whom are inclined to sexual and domestic violence. Is it like the men are resisting with violence, the transformation of their town? Really good point. Yeah. Yeah. It reminded me a little bit of like, no spoilers for the Barbie movie, but the Ken's in the Barbie movie staged January 6th, 
like they're in the outfits they all get together they throw a big riot and it's like well this is january 6 and um like the mm-hmm. vision of right-wing masculinity like they got the aesthetics down like it's australia yeah. so nobody's really carrying yeah like an american flag or a confederate flag or one of those gadsden don't tread on me flags your guns I think. yeah they don't have guns they've got like shovels so it's like played for laughs because it's a little less menacing a it's a comedy show but b it's just a country that quite deliberately has got rid of all their guns oh, yeah. and has gun control but like the specter of male violence is rendered both like very real and threatening but also like shown to be ridiculous which i appreciated beautifully put yeah. yeah. And what we should say that the ringleader of this of this group, he's clearly wanting to wanting to take over for the town's mayor, who yeah. is a, one of the few women of color in the movie, who's having just the worst time because she's clearly sort of the driving force behind the festival, which is just not going well. Plus, um, it's in a recurring gag. Um, the all the killings are aggravating her IBS. <laughs> yeah. Her colon, her, quote: My colon is shredded. Shredded. <laughs> totally. Um, Again, a relatable queen. Amanda Palmer cancels, which oh I thought God. was just a perfect that note that Amanda perfect. Palmer yeah. is yes. supposed to be the headliner and she cancels. <laughs> Moira, I definitely also clocked the image you were describing as like, oh, this is reminiscent of Charlottesville. Like that to me seemed like a very yeah. deliberate illusion. And and also in the character you were just mentioning, Adrian, I, there felt like there was a little bit of an American reference to me too in that that character felt like sort of a demon Ron Swanson. Oh. You know, like in Parks and Recreation, Ron Swanson was this sort of like delightfully retrograde bearded guy who like was politically harmless, but just really liked like woodworking and steak. And then you see the sort of like shadow side to that in the like, whatever that guy's name is. But like, I just called him Demon Ron Swanson in my head the whole time I was watching the show. And he like literally runs a an Australian rules football club. That's what it was. Australian yeah. rules football is like, it's like rugby, but more violent somehow. And he this is the sort of activity of choice for all the men it's australian rules football and, and drinking yes. beer and that's what they do and he is literally like the club leader <laughs> of all the men in town yeah the other thing we might mention and this is where kind of like we have this kind of anarchic right-wing violence that sort of as i agree with you is sort of charlottesville-esque or january 6-esque mm-hmm. but you also have like a really good parody of like a far more sanctioned form of male violence, namely sort of through law enforcement, because Dulcie and Eddie kind of have to contend with this blowhard police commissioner of some kind who is always seen, seen doing things that appear to be vacations and kind of, and, but, but like yelling at them and basically like in no uncertain sexist terms, right? Like, you know, if you don't clean up, I'm going to come down there and do it for you, which then sort of really pays off in a beautiful set of gags where this hyper-masculine group of like kind of SWAT team members with this guy at their head like charge blindly down one lead and into the next and like it's very very funny and like I think it's really beautifully paid off at the very end when like basically the women have gotten their killer and like the story's over and you find out the SWAT team is still sort of charging around in the landscape and like trying to to like arrest the person that they think is responsible that's also like really interesting how, how like you kind of contend with one version of masculinity toxic masculinity throughout the the show and then you get this sort of like this sort of state sanctioned kind and it's like 
it's every bit as imbecilic as as the, yeah. as the football club. Yeah, there's all these like ineffectual like shows of dominance in what you were just noting yeah. in this sort of Charlottesville esque image, and in what you were just talking about, Adrian. It's like these women have actually done very little to antagonize their surroundings, except by existing, right? But the landscape keeps hitting back in these violent, yeah. st yeah. state-sanctioned, and intramural ways. Well, to be fair, Poseidon's uterus does seem like a. <laughs> I still, Some I would kind watch of crime. Poseidon. Yeah. Who moves the Poseidon's uterus? Yeah. <laughs> Something I thought was interesting was that none of the rapists are alive. There's like a lot of revelations of mm -hmm. history of sexual abuse. And every man who has committed those things against these women who are sort of at the forefront of the story. That's a really good point. Uh, this like cadre of the women of the town, they're all off stage. They're not still there making trouble. They've yeah. either been killed or they've disappeared or they're gone somehow. Well, I think that's a plot point. Well, spoiler alert. Yeah. But like some of the murdered men turn out to have, you know, uh, dark pasts. But that's a really good point in terms of how the show sets its own frame of justice, right? You know, like, I don't think this would be an especially punishing show. I, I can't speak for everybody, obviously, but I could certainly argue that this would be a less punishing show than many others to watch for a survivor because, mm -hmm. like, yeah. it shifts its yeah. frame of justice in, like, such a clearly feminist and female-driven way. Oh, Just speaking of female-driven, do we do we have a fourth guest entering our conversation? Yes, there's a... <laughs> strong female lead. Yeah, we have a strong, strong female, female lead. Entering the, entering the story. Who watched, like, half an episode with me uh, until I was... Like, of Deadlock? The... Yeah, I was like... <laughs> I was like, oh, and now, and then there, there, someone's like, what's that? I'm like, okay, we're going to pause right here and uh, finish this <laughs> I am gutted to report that I was not able to convince my children to go to the Barbie movie with me. I won't say who, but one of them was willing to go and the other was not. Um, so that was real, real grief for me last week. Oh, have you guys not seen it yet? I have not seen it because I've had a I've stretch with my it. kids. So I'm embarrassed for myself oh, when you were talking I'm about sorry. it earlier. No, I was, I'm a childless wonder. I was I was babysitting uh, while my husband went to see it, so you know. <laughs> Good for you. Hashtag feminism. Hashtag <laughs> <laughs> <After> feminism. <laughs> well, if our young guest is making her debut, perhaps we should wrap this scintillating conversation up. Were there any other things that you guys really wanted to get to about the deadlock of it all? I loved the character of Eddie. Who... Yeah, we haven't really talked much about the central about the central the central pair, um, central pair, the the buddy cop. Yes, boy, are they mismatched. And Eddie, I agree, like is a pretty terrific character in the sense that, like, the first episode, I was like, oh man, I don't know if I can do this for eight episodes. This person is great. Yeah, yeah. like very <sighs> cartoonish at first. Yeah, and without it really, without her performance really becoming any less broad, it becomes like. It's it's very cannily done. I really liked it. The, the way that like they don't sort of they, they don't have her pull back at all. But instead, like you start realizing that there's a kind of logic to that character. And I, I really liked liked her a lot. But you also fully understand, like talk about a mismatch duo, why Dulcie Collins is like, what the fuck? What the actual fuck? Yeah, there's a it's a classic comedic pairing where there's a tall, skinny, straight man, and then there's a like a much shorter, wacky outsider yeah. person. And the yeah. Eddie is the outsider. She comes from Darwin, as she keeps saying, and is like, you know, really like physically gross as well as doing a lot yeah. of like physical comedy very big gesturing there's like all this comedic 
hygienic disruptions. Like at one point she has lost her shoes. Mm -hmm. So she like duct tapes some cardboard to her feet. Uh, She's never showered or changing her clothes. And she is, I think in a cast of genius, one of the show's only heterosexual women. Yeah. Yeah. Who plays like very broadly heterosexual. And I like what both of you are saying about her. And it also like, I felt like the danger of a mismatched pairing buddy cop construct is to make the pairing super binary. And like one of them is all good. And one of them is all bad in, in some way. And I felt like the show was complex enough to resist that in a really interesting way. Like Eddie's character is dimensionalized in some of the ways you guys were just talking about. And you certainly learn a lot about her motivations in like a poignant way over the course of the show. Wait, you found that poignant? (laughs) I mean, I I I love the fact that you know know it's going to be a dark secret when the dark secret comes. It's fucking hilarious. But I I think all of that can be true and it can still be poignant. Like I was genuinely moved by Eddie's like comedic plight, you know? But what I was gonna say, what I was actually gonna say is like I think it would have been wow. easy. I mean, I I'm I, I must say I just laughed out loud. I just thought it was so It can be funny and poignant. <laughs> You're so German. I guess um, so. I guess so. No, I was gonna say I think it would have been easy to make Dulcie like too clean cut and like too perfect with mm-hmm. her perfectionist tendencies and like relentless competence. So I really liked that she had like dogged around on her wife and that like her affair and infidelity was this like shadow kind of throughout their perfect partnership and it just made her like a complex real character in a way that i appreciated yeah we should say that the the other thing that really sets these two women kind of on this collision course is the fact that like dulcie used to be a detective and sydney and then uh, left because of yeah because of personal for personal reasons for deadlock which he sort of still resents the hell out of clearly and it was kind of she frames it as like she kind of took a demotion to take this job in deadlock yeah yeah yeah. and then she sort of sees this person who like probably has no business being a detective if we're being quite honest because i feel like you know shoes should be really the first requirement (laughs) of the job you know slow to the ground literally well, Deadlock is on, Loathe as we are, you know, to recommend Amazon products, Loathe is on Amazon Prime, and that's where we all watched it. And it will suck you in. It, it didn't let me go for eight episodes. It was so fun. <laughs> I want everybody to watch it so that uh, they make yeah. another season, because I had a lot of fun watching it. Do we think that they're going to go back to Darwin for, uh, going to go to Darwin, or are they going to go back to Deadlock for I don't second? know. We'll have to tune in. Good question. Guess to have to see whose tongues go missing. <laughs> All right, Adrian, for those of you who can't hear, is like covered in child now. (laughs) So we will be back with more soon on other things that we enjoy. And you guys should also listen to Adrian and Moira's podcast, In Bed with the Right. Out now. Out now on major platforms. Thank you for joining us for this discussion of Deadlock. And uh, we will be back at your earwave soon. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thanks all. Thank you.